The content here is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice or be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any Bain Capital Ventures Fund. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Zoe Tang. Our guest today is Kevin Zhang, partner at Bain Capital Ventures. At BCV, Kevin focuses on partnering with inception stage entrepreneurs at the intersection of business software and financial services, with particular emphasis on FinServe enablement, productivity and automation, and data infrastructure. Prior to BCV, Kevin led product as the first business hire at Fondura, a financial services marketplace. In today's episode, we discuss Kevin's life story, his investment philosophy and observation of the market, and advice for first-time entrepreneurs. Hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Kevin, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. I'm super excited to sit down with you today and get to know more about your story and your investment philosophy. Just to start with, wondering if you can share with a bit more about your story. Where did you come from and how do you end up where you are today? Awesome. Um, where do you want me to start? Up to you. However you feel comfortable to tell your story. <laughs> well, um, maybe I won't belabor the point, uh, but uh, let's see. I, um, uh, I was born and my family was in Miami. Um, I spent um, five years, the early part of my life, with my grandparents um, who um, taught at a university um, in Beijing. Um, so that were very, actually very formative years. You know, it, I'm sure it's very hard for any of us to remember our first four or five years. Um, but, um, you know, I certainly, I think I took away a lot of sort of cultural, ethical, and moral, you know, sort of stories from that time. And more importantly, perhaps my, um, you know, my grandparents just were intellectual curiosity. My, my grandfather, um, you know, he was a chemistry professor, but he loved to sort of take apart and fix VCRs and, you know, got me interested in like electronics early on. Um, I ended up, um, you know, returning to the States for school um, in New Jersey and then um, college in New York, where I sort of fell into both um, financial technology um, and uh, and startups. Um, I went to go work um, at a young tech company in New York um, called Fundera, which is a marketplace for small business loans. Um, and then I joined, um, I moved to San Francisco uh, about six or seven years ago now uh, to join Bank Capital Ventures, uh, where today I'm a partner focused on the intersection of business software and financial services technology. Great. Curious to hear a bit more about what attracted you about FinTech. We previously worked at companies as Fundura and Edapar. Wondering why did you choose to work at these companies? Yeah, I mean, I um, I would say that um, <laughs> the truth is that I, when I got to college, I wanted to get some business experience because I thought I, I always thought I might have entrepreneurial ambitions, but you know, it wasn't a background that you know anyone in my family had. Um, and to be honest, I guess um, FinServe was like the industry that would hire me <laughs> as a you know young like economics major with no particular skills or 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 uh, or, or experience. Um, I uh, my first is sort of I, when I guess why I basically applied for every 
job that seemed, you know, um, reasonable. Uh, in fact, I, um, I took a tax prep course um, in Queens, um, you know, because if you pass the test, you could become a tax preparer. And I figured, oh, you know, that's a useful skill. It deals with money. I actually took the course uh, over winter break, my freshman year of college, um, and um, I did not pass, and I was not hired as a tax preparer. Uh, actually, maybe I did pass, but I, it was a low pass, and I was not hired. And uh, ironically, you know, I'm now on the board of a you know personal income embedded personal income tax filing a business, which we can talk about later. Um, but I, but my my first real job in college, I think, was I you know I slept down to Grand Central a couple times a week and. I interned for a financial advisor's office, independent um, RIA, who was on LPL Financial, and um, it was very unsexy work. And it was—I did it for sort of twenty-dollar transit reimbursement uh, every day. Um, and, but I, you know, I helped with some client presentations and some, you know, learned people about how they thought about portfolio allocation. And I prepared, you know, the dishes and washed, you know, like wash dishes and cut fruit, you know, for client meetings. Um, oh, but, wow. I, but it's funny—you you can't connect these dots, you know, um, in advance, but, um, you know, two summers later, um, someone I knew introduced me to the team at Adapar. Um, and I presume I was the only sophomore intern they interviewed who had worked, they made both management technology, actually, they're now a leading provider of uh, reporting software for financial advisors, but I was probably the only sophomore they interviewed, um, uh, whose family did not have a financial advisor, but who had worked, uh, for a financial advisor. And, you know, I don't know that I could have stood out among the candidates and got internship were not for that. Um, so I, as I said, I, I worked at Adapar uh, for a bit. That was my first Silicon Valley experience. I sort of fell in love with the the tech side of fintech. Um, I had started the prior summer at a municipal bond insurance company, uh, which actually I learned a lot um, about, um, you know, the debt markets. Um, and then even, you know, I spent the summer at Bain & Company um, and um, even at Bain & Company, you know, our client was a... Um, I should say a, a pioneering financial technology company in the Fortune 500, um, and so I, I sort of no matter what, I kind of couldn't get away from it. It wasn't intentional, but I, I also you know loved it. I was interested in it and felt like I was building a real skill set and knowledge base. Yeah, there's actually a tax management and planning class at Wharton as well, and I gotta admit it's a very difficult class. And tax is super complicated. And I think if there's anything I learned from the class, said I'm definitely not qualified to become a tax planner. So I would love to learn more about the company you invested in. Uh, curious, how did you decide to um, switch out to the venture side after a couple of years at Fondura? Yeah, I had, um, you know, so I had, um, before I came to Bank Capital Ventures, I was, um, the first business hire, um, what some might now say like founding team member um, at a company in New York called Fundera, uh, which as I said earlier, is a, we're a marketplace connecting small businesses to the right lenders for their business. Um, and I was um, there early on um, before we used to had a product, uh, but this was, you may remember the era of P2P lending. Yeah. Uh, the era of what used to be called shadow banking. I remember I was reading about that term in The Economist and like every good college student, I got all my opinions from the economist. So I thought it was an interesting space to be in. Um, and, um, you know, I, um, I really loved my time there. Um, I, I, I thought it was, um, I, I felt like it would be hard to find another experience where I could work for an experienced founder uh, with a funded company in a space that was exciting and an outgrowth trajectory. Um, you know, and so I thought it was a fantastic space. So I have to talk more about that. I, 
Um, it was sort of not at all obvious to me that I should be or wanted to be an investor. Um, I think even coming to BCV, my original thinking was more, you know, that I wanted a broader perspective. Um, I I didn't know if I want to be a small business product manager for the rest of my life. I you know, I thought it was interesting, but I felt too young to sort of commit to something so specific. And the goal at, at Big Capital Ventures actually did just broaden my perspective. In fact, when I first joined, I wasn't focused on financial technology. I was focused on um, business software or SaaS. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and so the goal was to sort of like see more things out there, meet more people. And my original objective actually was to um, you know, meet a team that I could go join early again and, and sort of try and go through that, that journey and hopefully be more impactful and effective um, and it sort of lead to an equal or even better outcome. Amazing. I think your personal experiences have definitely been reflected through your investment as well. Compared to other early stage VC founders, I know that you focus a lot on finding the right team or right founders. Curious if you can share with a little bit more on when we evaluate a founder, what are you looking for? And especially for first time founders with very little data points, what are you actually looking for in a founder? Yeah, I think the reality is that the moment where we where I tend to like to be involved, you know, leading a pre-seed or seed financing. Um I've led Series A's and beyond, but I think we often get involved very early. Um, there is no financial data usually. Um, there may not even be a you know a built out product. Um, and so I think um, the founder evaluation is really most of the data that you do have. Obviously, you can evaluate whether you think the business opportunity they want to pursue is viable or not. Uh, I, I tend to think that's really just a data point about them. Um, for me, over time, I think my I think what I've come to really look for is a few things. Um, I have a bias probably in favor of technical founders. Um, I, 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 I've never worked with a team that doesn't have at least one technical co-founder. And many of the teams I work with, the CEO is technical, even if they themselves are not actually in an engineering role. Um, I think that, um, I think that what the closer that like the technology leader is to the commercial and, pro- and the commercial performance and the product needs and constraints. I think the better because it reduces the communication cost. You know, if you have, um, you know, between if you have like two not technical founders and then they've got a CTO, you know, it just it creates more distance in, in the iteration cycle. Um, it, it's more expensive; it requires three people instead of two people. Um, and so, I, I, it's a that's sort of a significant component to me. I think the second thing is um, is that I look for sort of more outlier commerciality, uh, which is a VC term I'm sure you've heard, but is an all encompassing. I think it might be basically boils down to like someone's ability to create and close a deal. Um, can they, you know, build a relationship? Can they illustrate, you know, mutual or you know, one side at least one sided interest? And can they convince a person to, you know, um, you know, make a business agreement, et cetera? Um, I think, um, you know, there are there are some folks who are very focused on technical credentials. Uh, there's some folks very focused on, you know. Um, kind of like uh you know pitching uh, but i but i think it's i think it's a, it's sort of neither of those things is really sort of I, I think the best folks are you know they're they're um they they're a little bit less like pure salesy and a little bit more um strategic thinker where you know you want to work with them because they what they say just makes sense and uh and and they've sort of presented it to you in a way that that is compelling um like the third thing uh of four i think the third thing is um urgency um i think um, my observation is like opportunities are moments in time. Um, when you have momentum, I think you have to 
strike while the iron is hot. Um, and um, I think that some of the founders I work with that are, and got the first you know, surprise are also ones where they embody this like really rapid iteration. They make stuff happen. They always want to do the do that extra thing before they sleep for the night. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm not making a judgment about, you know, sort of lifestyle, but I do think the reality is when you're trying to build something from nothing, like you are in a fight against oblivion every day. Um, you know, the, the, so the founders, some of the founders I, I work with, you know, I think they, um, you know, instead of saying like, let's do a demo and then let's, when you agree, I'll come and set up the software for you, you know, separately, they're like, you know what, like, let's set up your software right now. We're on the call. Let's get the dot, you know, let's, let's create an account for you. Let's set this up. Okay. Like here you, you have this all set up and they sign on the call, you know, like sort of like, don't wait. Uh, don't think about the extra step, just make it happen sooner. I think that, you know, translate these incremental things translate over time into like much more progress sooner. Um, and then I think the last thing is kind of, um, you know, um, a bit of like an outlier divergent, like element. It, can, it, it doesn't have to be, it's not uniform in nature, but it's uniform in pattern. Um, so, you know, um, they, they have like some unique insight, you know, they, they have they quit they have really fast time to gain insight um they just they think about a problem differently you know if you if you sort of meet a founder and you feel like everything they said you could have read in McKinsey report um then i think that's much less exciting than the founder who um can express something to you that in retrospect is obvious but you know you would not have thought of uh originally um and they sort of conviction held because of some experience that they have um it can come from the experience it can come from you know some other type of exposure. Um, there are people with 10 years of experience that have no divergent perspective, and there are people with one year of experience with really unique thoughts. So, um, but I think those are kind of the four essential ingredients that I think about, you know, um, some amount of technical founder, commerciality, high degree of urgency, and some, you know, unique insider or outlier um, perspective. That's a fantastic framework. But it also sounds like it's very crazy to be a founder trying to balance between four priorities at the same time. Yeah. No one's perfect on all four, you know, but, I, and I think that, um, you know, I think one of the things that I felt when I first got into industry is, uh, over the first few years is I was, I was like, that's crazy, you know, because if you apply that level of filter, then you'll only make, you'll only meet at best, you know, a couple people a year who meet that bar. Yeah. And now that I'm seven years into it, I'm like, yes, that's correct. That is absolutely how, how it should be, uh, is that there should be only a few outliers. Um, and so that's kind of the, that's sort of the evolution. I've had. Maybe I'm just on too many boards now and <laughs> the incremental one feels more expensive, but I, I, I think that is sort of my takeaway. Great. As you know, a big portion of our listeners are students, either like MBA students or undergrad students who are very curious about how to be a great founder and strive to achieve everything you just listed out in the framework. Uh, curious if you could share a bit more about any advice or common mistakes you see first-time founders or student founders make as they embark on their journey. MBA students or undergrad students? <laughs> I guess both. Yeah. And then also wondering what advice do you have for them to mitigate or preempt these issues down the road? Well, I think they're somewhat distinct, you know, audiences. I think that undergraduate students, and you know, I work with some founders that dropped out or opted out of college, um, for example. Um, I think there's a big difference between having worked for, you know, a couple of years at a high growth company versus, you know, not having worked full time. You know, I think that um, you're kind of like, if you're not working full time at a, at a, you know, company that's analogous in some way, 
you're sort of making it all up, you know, as you go. And I think that the dangerous thing is that um, it's harder to know what good looks like. Um, you know, um, maybe, maybe like you were at a company where like they had a sales team that wasn't great, you know, but they had an engineering team that was great, you know. And so you at least know like what not great looks like and you know what great looks like. And so um, I, I think to me, like one of the most important things any of us can have in life is like perspective on where the benchmark is. And I think that one of the challenges for you know, um, dropout founders is that um, there's there's less perspective on that. I think you have to sort of find that in your own way, or you have the strong convictions about always raising the bar on these things. Um, and and so, you know, I think as a result, um, maybe not the founders that I work with, but I've certainly seen founders um, maybe lack that experience. Who, um, you know, you end up probably making more mistakes when hiring um, or. Um, uh, you know, you you might have um, performance that you know could could be held to a higher standard, which you know you may not know. You know where the higher standard rests. Um, and so I, I think that's one of those things. I think the second, obviously, is that um, I think that earlier career founders um, find it harder to hire more senior people, um, uh, particularly if you you know start a company right out of college. I think it feels really difficult to hire anyone other than kind of like friends your age. Um, and friends your age, you know, may not feel comfortable being managed by you, right? And so. <laughs> Um, I think that is one of the challenges. I I don't know that I feel that every young company needs to have someone, a lot of people with a lot of experience. I think in some ways that yeah. is not mandatory, at least in that kind of first you know, couple, you know, sort of like zero to 50 employee range. Um, but I do think that um, hiring well, you know, and having a, you know, a wide pool of potential applicants is really important to success. Um, so I think that's kind of, I think sort of people and standards, I think is kind of the challenge for um, like sort of more college um, entrepreneurs. I think that um, the challenge, I think for MBA, I mean, MBAs often have, you know, you sort of have a few years of work experience and you know often a very like structured and high performance culture. Um, I think that, um, I think the main thing is probably more like divergent perspectives uh, for MBAs, which is, um, you know, a lot of folks have pretty similar backgrounds, you know, you sort of were in consulting or banking or, you know, and so um, and these are all generalist roles. Um, they're where, um, I guess, like, part, and I say that someone who's worked at any company, like, the part of the goal is, like, is to, like, sound smart on a topic in a short period of time. But it's not like you have been in the weeds every day and have an intuitive understanding of the business. I think, I think Steve Jobs has this quote, something like, you've, you've painted the banana, you've, like, seen the banana, but you've never, like, tasted the banana uh, um you know and so i do i think that that level of like intuitive understanding of a particular space leads to better and more like unique insights um but uh but that's obviously a very broad overgeneralization yeah i was previously working as a consultant before my time at wharton and i feel like you could not summarize it better i sometimes struggle a bit to make a divergent opinion because I feel I don't have enough data by working in industry just for a short period of time. And I'm sure, as you mentioned, a lot of fellow MBAs have the same types of feelings. How would you recommend them to explore and to really form a divergent opinion? Is it through just putting their heads down and joining a startup or do you have any other recommendations? Yeah, I think it's okay to want a lot of data to make a decision about what, you know, a unique, an insight that you believe in that others do not. Um, I think what is hard for a lot of folks is making the commitment that is required to um, 
to get that data, right? Which often means leaving the generalist path and the flexible, perceived flexible path behind and, and sort of going somewhere that feels you know, where the road is more narrow and you're kind of like, you know, you, you one might be interpreted as pigeonholing themselves in a certain space. Um, you know, um, choosing like for some people, being a generalist is an ideal. You know, I have a I have a friend who I think is kind of like a platonically ideal, you know, McKinsey consultant, and he loves the strategy level. He loves the kind of industry level analysis, um, and that's fantastic. But I think it's you know that's um, it, it's sort of harder to think that leading to like starting a company uh, in a particular that starting solve with something very specific, right? Um, maybe maybe it's leading like start a new kind of consulting firm, but probably not uh, a new kind of technology company. Um, I, I think probably um, you'd have to like go more deep on a certain space. Um, you know, I think you probably you'd have you'd want to like work in an industry, and I think you're more like. And certainly, I certainly feel like you know, I'm in a journalist role in a way right now as a as a VC, and I feel like I had better business ideas and more like industry intuition and insight. You know, when I was working at Fundera, because we were in contact with the market every day. You know, we. We were talking to customers every day. We saw what our competitors were doing all the time. Um, in retrospect, I had decent ideas, you know, therefore about what businesses to start. Um, that and so I, I think that's just. But I, I recognize that it could be hard for people to sort of take the stand and say, "Yeah, um, I love um, manufacturing enough. You know, I love toy making. You know, enough. Uh, you know, whatever that answer might be." But I, I think in some ways that is. Um, that's not for everybody, but I think it's, you know, um, a good idea for some. Yeah. I think one upside to being in the generalist role, though, as you point out, is to have a view on the entire industry and understand what are different players doing and make a judgment on what are some of the best practices. Curious to see that if a portfolio company is probably not doing something that is considered industry practices per se, uh, what would you do to kind of nudge them onto the right path? Or would you think it's a VC's role to share a certain advice with the portfolio company? Well, I think that as an investor, you have to, I mean, I, my view is you have to be, you have to have humility about what you do and don't know, what you can and can't know, you know, about a particular company. I mean, I'm not at the business every day. And there are companies where I would like to sit in, you know, every day, um, but we're, but we spend our time differently. Um, I think there are probably, you know, spheres of competence, right? Where I think I feel least competent to comment on like the specifics of like the details of the product, you know, should the button go here or there? Like, how should this flow work? I mean, I think you can comment generally as a user, but there's no unique insight necessarily as an investor. Um, I think what you can comment a lot is how might other investors think about this, you know, and how might this affect cost of capital? And amazingly, that is relevant to a lot of different kinds of as uh, relevant to like a lot of different kinds of strategic questions a company might consider. Um, and I think tactically how that takes form is that, you know, most teams that we work with where we have a significant stake, we have a regular meeting with, whether it's quarterly, monthly, biweekly, et cetera, as, as is productive for them. And I think that the goal of any given meeting is not to like have the founder do a readout of the data. Like that's like the least productive. Uh, it's a very inefficient way of using anyone's time. Um, but the more helpful thing is to is to familiarize yourself with the with sort of the latest information about the business and be able to provide to the founder perspective on here's what I think are the questions I would ask. Here's my view on the questions that we are asking. Here's my view, here's my 
concerns about questions we're not asking. Um, and sort of this, this is sort of the kind of, you know, like, yeah, try it, you know, often for board meetings, we try and leave with, hey, here's my general you know, impression. Like, here's what we didn't talk about today that might be, I would push you on. I think most founders that we work with are receptive to that. And it's just a perspective, you know, ultimately I leave it to them whether they find that a useful thought or not. And I, I think the job of the investor is to do the work to, for those things to be somewhat thoughtful and informed. Yeah, makes sense. Just to backtrack a little bit and talk about the investing side a little bit more, over the last couple of years, you've invested a lot of companies in the intersection of financial services and process automation. Yep. In our lives today, there are many processes, for example, tax that we just talked about that are worth automating. Um, but wondering how do you prioritize and see what are the processes that are more worth being automated right now or like just more pressing um what i really appreciate your perspective on that um well it's surely some mix of feasibility and value right that is to say um some processes are not valuable because they are either infrequent or they don't lead to like significant business impact um so it, it ends up not being a priority you know for the business um unfortunately um, that's probably the correct like business decision. Um, and then I think that there's a feasibility element. There are some processes today that whatever hype we might have around artificial intelligence still require some level of human judgment, either um, for accuracy reasons or for empathy reasons or um, for security compliance reasons. Um, so not every process is going to be like fully automatable, um, but for, you know, relatively important to very important, you know, very feasible process, I think that that is an area where we are seeing a lot of companies, you know, look to buy technology to support them on it. Um, to me, like one of the interesting trends is uh, like config, like sort of configurability and the embedding of process into software. You know, I think if we think about the first generation of cloud software, it is a very like flat representation of your data. So, you, you know, you're sure you use like Salesforce, like it's a table, uh, you know, more like represented maybe slightly differently. Um, you know, whereas outreach, you know, you could argue is a is a sales process workflow product, right? And so it can automate certain steps like dialing the customer or, you know, recording notes, et cetera. Um, and so I think we're seeing more um, industries, I think, adopt technology that has this embedded sort of process management uh, capability. Um, you know, I work with this uh, mortgage technology business. They work with the mortgage origination process. And, and this is, I think, one of the capabilities, sort of workflow and process engine is a core part of their differentiation. Uh, we work with, an, I think, an unannounced investment in um, sort of logistics technology. Um, they they have this kind of like configurable um, process element. The business It's very different than the on-prem or first-generation cloud incumbents. Um, so I, I think that um, I think that's coming. You know, I think that more of the work and the nature of how the work gets done, and not just the data, you know, is is getting embedded into our software. That's very insightful, actually. And you previously mentioned the embedded tax company. Just wondering if that company is considered part of your thesis. Yeah, I think that the tax business, I think, you know, I think about automation as 
there, you know, there, there's different kinds of things that can be automated. Um, it can be automated by, you know, artificial intelligence, um, as to say judgment decisions, or it could be automated by data availability. Um, so, and, and integration. So I would say that I would think Column Times is more of a data availability integration product that, you know, the thesis, part of the thesis is that, um, there are a lot of businesses with whom you already have a, a relationship where they custody your financial data. They know ab about you, maybe about your identity, um, about certain aspects of your financial um, statistics and health. Um, and um, with Column Tax, you know, partnered with this you know institution, we can develop a tax filing experience that um, takes into account the information we already know about you. Um, so one of our partners, which is publicly announced, is um, Propel, um, which you know works with you know Americans that receive EBT um, benefits. Um, so we we already know if you receive EBT benefits, we already know a lot about you know what range of income you likely have, um, your dependents, um, you know whether your objective is to you know whether you're likely to have a tax liability or a tax refund. Um, so I think that. Um, I think the goal with Colonize is sort of, yes, it makes your life easier. You could say it's a kind of automation, but it's automation because we have, you know, we are moving the work closer to like uh, an, a, a source of data about you and using that data to um, simplify, um, you know, the, the requirements we need from the end user. Um, I, I, it's a little bit more of a nuanced um, form of making your life easier. Gotcha. Thank you for that overview. And I know you guys recently completed another deal with High Touch. Recently, would you mind share a bit more about the deal? I know you previously mentioned in other podcasts that it's a little bit of a controversial deal within BCV. So I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate the insider scoop. Sure. I mean, I think a few things I would say. Um, so just for background, uh, we originally were Series A investors um, in High Touch. Um, uh, which is the first round they raised as the current product that they're building. Um, uh, we were also in the Series B, and this is sort of a follow-on to the Series B financing. We announced it um, a couple of days ago. I guess that would be like Tuesday or Wednesday, you know, July, you know, eighteen or nineteen, something like that, along those lines. Um, uh, twenty twenty-three, as we record this, um, you know, uh, episode. Um, uh, High Touch is a data infrastructure company, um, as you may know. Lots of Companies are adopting cloud data warehouses like Snowflake, where um, they put you know, a lot you know, rather than maybe do point to point in their infrastructure, they move a lot of their data to the cloud data warehouse. And then they originally, for you know business intelligence reasons, analytics. Um, but increasingly, you know, the theory with High Touch is uh, we started out offering a product called Reverse ETL, which is the opposite of ETL, which gets data into the warehouse. This sort of takes you know allows you to select data from your warehouse and send it to end system. So you might use this to, you know, select information about a particular audience to, um, to advertise to on, you know, Facebook ads, you might use it to send information about a user's product engagement data, um, you know, into Salesforce, so you could target, you know, users based on their product engagement. Um, there's a lot of actually use cases for it. Um, uh, but, uh, but, but I think, um, and, and so maybe the two points I'm making one is I think, um, is an illustration of, um, how broad you could define financial technology. <laughs> yeah. uh, a lot of the um, early customers of High Touch were, um, you know, financial technology companies of some kind. Um, you know, car, you know, some card and AP management companies, for example, where 
they wanted to be able to target their go-to-market efforts or um, or other aspects of their business based on a customer's um, product usage, like how they swipe their card, they might receive different marketing or or different uh, product engagement um, uh, or different sales techniques. Um, you know, and so um, I think it just goes to show like. Um, financial services companies like use technology like anybody else and in particular i think they actually have to be very effective um from an analytics and data standpoint because um if they get that stuff wrong uh, they often go out of business or get nationalized right and so um yeah. so so i think this i think shows to me like a broad definition in, in my mind of you know what constitutes technology a financial services company could adopt i think that the other thing i would say in response to kind of your question is that it is true that um you know, maybe controversial is too strong of a word, but I think that it is true that, um, you know, when we first invested, that a lot of people had questions about, you know, how big of a space is reverse ETL? Uh, will lots of other, you know, companies offer this? Will the cloud data warehouses offer this? Um, you know, someone else in the stack that could compete with us? Um, uh, and, uh, you know, is how easy or hard is it to build? Uh, and I think that, you know, to me, like the, the dual lessons are, you know, these things are always harder to build than you think, um, and um, and so I, I think that we 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 remain kind of a, a market leader, and we have specific pricing power um, in reverse ETL uh, use cases. Um, but I also think that I think we have to bear in mind that if you bet on a great team, um, they will naturally find you know adjacent opportunities. And I think the opportunity that Hydra just found is that. Um, is that, you know, we were already helping data science and data teams to activate the cloud data warehouse. Um, but what we found was that actually increasingly in the in the enterprise with consumer companies, um, their marketing teams are big, you know, if you're a, you know, a big consumer brand, marketing is an essential component of what you do. Um, their marketing teams increasingly had embedded data people um, and they were using um, uh, what are in the category of software called customer data platforms, which it's traditionally sells to marketing, has a long implementation cycle, involves you know a lot of investment up front, and, and in the end of it, often doesn't have all the same data or as much of the data coverage as a cloud data warehouse would. Um, we realized that we could offer a product to marketers um, that uh, essentially operates like a cloud data, a customer data platform. It you know solves some of the same problems as a customer data platform in terms of letting you use your customer data you know more effectively in your marketing in a variety of ways. Uh, but that we could do so native to the cloud data warehouse where your company already has all your data unified and and ideally organized and cleaned. Um, and you could do this, you could, you know, with, with far less implementation cost and time. Um, lots of marketers have been burned by kind of long and failed implementation cycles at CDP. So the, so Hydrogen's composable CDP has been um, a really exciting new growth area that I think is, you know, very differentiated and they led the charge on. And so I, I think kind of the point there is like, it's a great team, um, not just the founders, but, but a lot of the folks that they've um, brought together. And, um, you know, I think for many of great teams with momentum, you know, this is one case where I feel like they've been able to expand the scope of what the business could be. That's really fascinating. And within BCV, sounds like, there are several different partners having different opinions with this specific investment. Curious if you can share a little bit about the process to reach the investment decision. Is it at the end determined by the vote or how did you guys reach a decision? Our process um, is there's a formal element and there's an informal element, right? Which is the formal element is that um, 
for investments of more than three or four million dollars, we convened the, an investment committee that includes five partners, uh, at least five partners, um, and we will take a vote. Uh, and you can have you know one partner vote no, uh, basically, and still have it pass. Uh, so if you have two partners who vote no out of five, and you know, generally speaking, by formal rules, means that you know you you can invest. Um, I think the informal element is that we are a partnership of like 10 people you know and so we should not uh, we should we need to have some guidelines um, because it you know allows us all to kind of have a fair and transparent you know uh, strategy for making decisions um, but the truth is there have been cases where you know maybe there's a very controversial investment more than one person has voted no and if the if the sort of sponsoring partner has the trust, um, you know, and credibility to go to some of those people and say, listen, I understand, here's why I think we should do this. Um, you've been able to flip votes afterwards. So I, I think it's, you know, it's more complicated, I think, than the formal written rules uh, would say. But I also think in some ways it should be more flexible. Um, these decisions are never easy. And, um, you know, in some ways it's much easier to say no than yes. Um, and it is up to, I think, all of us to, you um, hear the feedback, process it, um, and, you know, either push back if we have conviction or, you know, have that influence or just most of the time I feel like the committee um, gives me really helpful outside perspective. When you are excited about a deal, you often um, get tunnel vision, you know, and so um, having that helpful outside perspective is is really um, good. I, there have been limited situations where I have disagreed, um, and it, we've been able to figure out a you know a resolution. And and you know I recognize those are a matter of significant trust, which uh, a reflection I think of, but really like positive and collaborative working dynamic. Yeah, it sounds like you guys are super thoughtful when it comes to making our investment decisions. So I'm sure the entrepreneurs are super appreciative of that. And to me, it almost sounds like a political committee rather than an investment committee. Um, and just to wrap up, I know you're a big fan of international politics. Just wondering if there is a political figure we can have dinner with, who would that be and why? Well, you know, it's, um, I think it's hard not to say Lee Kuan Yew, um, who, you know, I think was, uh, you know, I think it remains, uh, you know, widely, highly regarded for, um, not only his governance um, of, you know, what was at the time he set it to power, um, not the, you know, financial and business center it is today, but also I just, I find him to have um, interesting perspectives about the world. Uh, I think he is informed by you know, the Western tradition, he, you know, obviously has a degree from, uh, from Oxford, if I remember correctly, or, uh, or Cambridge. Um, and, uh, um, uh, I think he was, he was a mathematics major or something there. Um, but, um, um, but, but he also, you know, has a, you know, he also comes from the, the sort of more Eastern culture. Um, so I, I think it's a, and he, he has a different perspective, I think, than some, you know, policy thinkers who are more, you know, purely in the Western tradition. And certainly if you think about the center of gravity of the world population, you know, I think he's more reflective in some ways of the median um, person um, in the world today. And so I, I just find that, um, anyway, I, I think he would be fascinating um, just to listen to. And, um, and uh, I, I, you know, some, you know I, I sort of 
watch YouTube videos today, which is, I guess, the best alternative to actually having dinner with someone live. Great. Just to end things on a more positive note, with your <laughs> background growing up in China and also your interest in international relations, curious if you will be interested in investing in international ventures going forward. Um, I think it's certainly, you know, um, sadly, we only have 24 hours in a day. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, uh, as I said earlier, you know, it's, um, it's hard to be a generalist and have, you know, specific insight. Um, I think I've chosen to be a very, very narrowly tailored, um, like a sort of individual. Um, but yeah, certainly, I, you know, I, I, uh, actually worked, um, part of a summer, um, in Shanghai, um, when I was in college. And, um, I think the reality is that, um, Surely it would be difficult to be an effective investor, um, on, you know, in the mainland. I think it's a very different system, um, very different relationships. Um, I'm ultimately, I think, very American <laughs> in my like cultural outlook and personal affect. Um, I, I think there are probably other geographies that I find fascinating. You know, um, certainly I think Southeast Asia will be an interesting uh, region that well, I, I assume will be part of this tug of war uh, between um, sort of the West and and and, and the East um, in, in a productive way, I think. Um, and um, that's sort of the, you know, I, I, was, I visited Singapore several times in the last few years, and I think if I had a, if I had more time, I think that is probably an area I would spend more time. Um, I also think like I feel. Um, so I disconnected from like the, the culture and the history, like sort of like forget the sort of political dimension. Like I think um, I've found myself trying to read more about you know like dynastic history, um, the Ming Dynasty, and and you know its predecessors. Um, and I, I find that uh, fascinating, on a more like personal uh, <laughs> sort of uh, uh, like intellectual level. Yeah, for sure. We all wish we have more time. But I'm super excited about the upcoming opportunities you're going to explore internationally. Sounds like you have a great plan. And yeah, thank you again for sitting down with us today. It's been a fascinating conversation. And thanks again for taking the time. Of course. Thank you for having me. And uh, it's, it's a real honor. Um, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your time at school. It's a really unique opportunity. And uh, I'm excited to see what you end up doing in the future. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. We appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech, where we'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Austria, and until next time, this is your host, Zoe.